Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and it is time travel o'clock on Weird House Cinema. Today's movie selection is the 1979 romantic sci-fi adventure Time After Time by the American writer and filmmaker Nicholas Meyer. Uh, so this is a movie that I had never seen until this week, uh, and I came across it by way of a plot description in some article I was reading somewhere. I don't even remember what it was now. But I discovered in this article that there was, allegedly, a time travel <laughs> adventure movie in which the English writer H.G. Wells, real historical figure, uh, author of the novel The Time Machine, played in this movie by Malcolm McDowell, must use a real time machine to chase Jack the Ripper, played by a smooth and sadistic David Warner, through space and time in this time machine to prevent the Ripper from slashing 20th century disco dancers. And the premise was, it sounded so bonkers that I immediately thought this had to be a good option, option for Weird House. And then the really surprising thing was the more I read about it, the more it seemed that most critics really liked this movie, even though I had somehow never really heard of it, or if I'd heard about it, it didn't make enough of an impression that I remembered it. Uh, so so I sought this out, and I, I got to say I was really impressed. Now, on the downside, for, for Weird House context at least, I will say this movie doesn't actually, when you're watching it, feel quite as weird in its execution as a straight read on the premise would lead you to assume – but nevertheless, I, I think this is mostly just a really great movie, and it opens up all kinds of interesting, bigger questions about uh, the themes and ambitions of time travel stories and science fiction in general. Yeah, I was excited to view this film again, um, especially after watching Spookies last week, uh, in part because I was excited because you had never seen it, and uh, and so that would make it uh, fresh. It's a film that I had not seen in a long time. I remember watching it on TV. I don't know if they used to show it on like TNT or maybe uh, it came on A&E or something back in the day, but I remember watching it on television and, uh, oh, it's, uh, it, it, it does, it holds up so well. I don't, I've, I've spoken to various people and, and folks who have seen this movie, they tend to like it. I, I haven't met anybody who hated it. It's kind of like an orange Julius, I guess, as long as you <laughs> just don't really hate orange juice or really hate, um, you know, uh, malls or <laughs> malls or something. I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible analogy. Uh, but I don't know. It's something about about this film just seems to to sit well with most people. I don't know. Everything's very well calibrated. Like it's mm -hmm. sci-fi, but it's not so sci-fi that it turns off people that would be opposed to say rampaging Morlocks. And yet right. people like like us who might say why are there no Morlocks in this picture? It's still it's still so captivating and well acted and well put together that I ultimately can't argue too much about the results. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I would have of course enjoyed if it if it went much weirder and wrapped in more H.G. Wells lore, had Morlocks and all kinds of stuff like that. It doesn't, and in fact, the film is almost the opposite of that. I would say for a science fiction movie involving one of the most like uh, notorious sadistic serial killers in history. This is an extremely uh, cozy feeling movie. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I would agree. I believe this was a PG, but it was a 1979 PG. So yeah. I do not recommend watching this with, with your young children. Uh, right. <laughs> there is, there is blood and there are some mature themes that are explored, but, but even those mature themes, uh, which are, you know, just 
part of the tapestry you're invoking by bringing in a character like Jack the Ripper. They are they are handled in a very light and and ultimately kind of comforting way, I guess. And I think it also helps that, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny, I, I want to uh, criticize myself because I think in a previous episode of Weird House Cinema, I was trying to list actors that just have that evil look that unfortunately just have faces where maybe they can't overcome the fact that they look sadistic and sinister. Uh-huh. And one of the actors I singled out in this regard is Malcolm McDowell. I'm like, it's going to be hard to have Malcolm McDowell as a hero because he just looks like an evil person. That's not a nice thing to say, but for some reason he does. And yet I hadn't <laughs> seen this movie at the time. In this movie, he's so sweet. He is. This he is. He's very lovable in this. He's a Victorian teddy bear. Uh, and and he, he also feels smaller than usual, uh, yeah. probably by design, the way they were shooting him and maybe leaning into his actual height a little bit instead of putting him on an Apple box or something. Um yeah, it's also fascinating that he. This was the film that followed up uh, the notorious Caligula, in which he very much played a, a villain and a, a nasty character in a in a nasty film. And uh, apparently, that was part of it. He's like, I really don't want to play a villain for for once. Can I play the hero of a picture? And yeah, he's great in this. It's almost hard to imagine the gap that is crossed going from Caligula to this sweet romantic time travel adventure, uh, you know, love story uh, galloping across time. Caligula is it's it's a movie that I have tried to watch for badness sake years ago mm-hmm. with with some friends. And I, li- I couldn't make it through the movie. It is just so, so repulsive and like. It it is the one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen. Like the colors hurt the eyes. It's just relentless, depressing violence and and depravity. There's one part that's uh, you know it would have been funny in a different movie because it's so ridiculous. There's a part where like um, I think Malcolm McDowell is like watching a gigantic lawnmower in ancient Rome, just like cut off the heads of people mm-hmm. who were buried up to their necks. But but the movie is like so depressing. Like even that wasn't funny. Uh, yeah. So so it's just yeah, just awful. And then yeah, going from that to this, which is just this this spry, sprightly, beautiful time travel adventure. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 quite a, quite a leap. But yeah, I it, it, he, he's he's very good in this. And I will say that as Malcolm McDowell aged. I feel like he kind of aged into that face even more to where it's harder to imagine older Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> playing um, a, a likable character, a, a non-villain. But but I say that he's been in so many films, I'm sure he pops up later on playing like a kind, grandfatherly character. But but also I think he, he became increasingly uh, typecast as he got older too. Yeah. And he's still active. We'll get into his bio in, in a bit. But yeah, he's still active. So there's still time. Okay, how about a movie where Malcolm McDowell plays Santa Claus? He could go the Kurt Russell route, you know? Uh, I don't know. I guess the part of the thing is, if you are going to pay out and get Malcolm McDowell to play Santa Claus in your film, then clearly you want villainous Santa Claus. Like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> you know. At this oh, point, it's like, he's, he's it's one of the yeah, one of those Santa Claus is a is the monster movies, like the one yeah. with Goldberg. <laughs> you remember that one? Uh, I I know of it. Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, give a little historical context for the premise of this movie, which is, once again, H.G. Wells must pursue Jack the Ripper through time in a time machine to stop him from from ripping the 20th century. 
Yeah, well, let's let it rip here. So, first of all, what do you need to know about H.G. Wells and the Time Machine uh, to enjoy this film? Well, not a lot, but here are the basics. Time Machine is an excellent 1895 novel by English writer H.G. Wells, who lived 1866 through 1945. It's a short read, widely available, and in, in my opinion, it holds up really well. It's a very readable text today. One thing that's worth noting is that the time, this movie is set before H.G. Wells wrote the novel. So, uh, mm-hmm. so he wrote the novel in 1895. I don't remember exactly the year, but I think this is set in 1891 or 93, something like that. Or the beginning is before they travel through time. Eight, uh, 1888, I believe. Oh, okay. Could that, be. Would be the, that would be prime ripping uh, time right there. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, at any rate, uh, this is not the absolute first time travel yarn. That's a, It's an interesting discussion to get in. I think we've talked about this in the show when you try and figure out, like, who was the per- first person to deal with time travel. But it was the first time travel story to gain just a huge degree of popularity. And Wells actually coined the term time machine. Hmm. Now, to be clear, the character in the book is just the time traveler and is not Wells himself. Uh, I Wells think it's written a, from a first-person perspective. Isn't it? it is, but yeah. I don't think we're really supposed to assume that Wells made a time machine. No, no, um, no, no. <laughs> this, this film, however, takes a different approach. Um, Wells was a futurist, though, in real life. Uh, he was not an inventor outside of the invention of sci-fi concepts and the like and you know, the exploration of new ideas. Uh, the book has been adapted a few different times, including the famous 1960 George Powell adaptation. This one has a really iconic look for the time machine, wonderful Morlock designs. Uh, like when you think Morlocks, these are the Morlocks you probably picture. But there was also a 1978 TV movie and a 2002 remake that uh, I've seen. And as, uh, it, I remember it being all right. But the interesting <laughs> thing about it is that it was directed by Wells' great-grandson, Simon Wells. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's worth seeing it on its own, even if it came out in 2002, which, man, movies from 2002, it is hard to escape that early 2000s look. It just kind of bleeds mm-hmm. into everything. I watched a movie from 2002 the other day. It was a really bad but enjoyable Clint Eastwood uh, detective movie from 2002 called Bloodwork. Oh, really? I don't know if you've seen that one. I have not seen that one. <laughs> well, so, I mean, absolute like hack detective story, uh, h- hilarious, but also uh, quite fun. And it's got that look. It just like everything from 2002 has this, I don't know, this some feature of like the contrast and the colors and everything. It just everything mm-hmm. looks kind of slick and awful. Well, uh, it's been a while since I've solved the 2002 time machine, but I remember I remember being entertained by it, and I remember that it had Jeremy Irons as a Morlock in it. So, oh, good good choice there. Yeah, <laughs> I remember the Morlocks looked pretty good, but then again, I'm just I'm generally in on the idea of Morlocks. Hard to break Morlocks for me. Oh, but one thing that uh, was true about the historical figure H.G. Wells that is also true of the character in the movie is that he was known as something of a kind of uh, progressive utopian socialist so, and a futurist. So he mm-hmm. had a lot of like visions of the future that involved uh, uh, progressive political ideals. I'm not sure if all of the exact things stated by the the character in the film would be real things that H.G. Wells thought or would have said, but it's at least sort of in the ballpark. Right. And then you know, ultimately, the, the film is largely about the idea that if, if Wells represents optimism for the future coming out of the Victorian age and ultimately the optimism about what was possible in the Victorian age in the late 1900s, then our other figure represents the worst of that time period, uh, the, the right. notorious character of Jack the Ripper. 
So uh, what do you need to know about Jack the Ripper? Okay, here are the basics. So in many ways, this is the original true crime sensation and a topic of continued and largely fruitless intrigue today, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, also referred to as Leather Apron. This was an unidentified serial killer active in London's Whitechapel district around 1888. He targeted underprivileged members of society, uh, generally prostitutes, and was known for the modus operandi of slicing first the throat, then the abdomen, as well as his taunt letters to the media. Uh, now, one note I do have there is that uh, because this movie set me off on a reading spree where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I need to know things about Jack the Ripper. Uh, the letters are one of the most famous things about him, though I think there is serious doubt about the authenticity of all of the letters. I think there's yes. only one letter that historians take seriously at all as possibly being from the killer himself. And this is the so-called from hell letter uh, because, and I think the reason this is the only one that's really taken seriously is that it was accompanied by a jar containing a piece of actual human kidney allegedly taken from one of the victims, though it's not possible to confirm whether it actually came from a victim or not. They didn't have like DNA testing at the time, obviously. And, uh, and so it, and it could have been obtained from a medical college or cadaver or something like that. Yeah. I believe the police at the time, they suspected or one of their theories was that it, it that was the origin of the the organ as it came from some sort of a, you know, um, a cadaver uh, situation right. as opposed to a murder victim. And, um, and one of the weird things about it is that uh, the from hell letter, I will say, just as a, like a literary appraisal of the interest contained in these letters, it's one of the less interesting ones. Like the yeah. really interesting letters are the ones that are the now pretty levels. much yeah known mm-hmm. to be hoaxes that were sent uh, possibly by like journalists trying to gin up interest in the story further to sell more newspapers. Yeah, absolutely. Those those are some of the more entertaining letters, uh, but also and you can see why they they would have been fabricated just to sort of drum up this uh, this this paranoia and excitement about the murders. They have that one of them has that line. I shan't stop ripping uh, uh, right till yeah. I am good and buckled or something. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so, yeah. It, you know, there's a, a high probability that he didn't write any of these letters, but they are very much associated with him. The idea of this this figure that is killing and then mocking the press that is that is the subject of all of this media and public fear and fascination, but is also potentially feeding it as well and feeding off of it. Right. And I think it's these letters, even though probably none of them are authentic or at least most of them are not authentic. It's these letters that sort of create one of the most lasting legacies of Jack the Ripper, which is this idea that he's sort of playing a game of chess with the police Mm, uh, and that this is a major part of his motivation. And this does come through in the movie as well, because you see uh, Jack the Ripper uh, in his identity before he's revealed to be Jack the Ripper. Uh, he he is a friend of H.G. Wells, and they play chess together in the movie. And, you know, he's very into, like, outsmarting his opponents. Yeah. Now, there are, I think, just five um, verified murders, if you will, by Jack the Ripper, though there are others that may or may not uh, be attributed to him, depending on where you're falling. And then likewise, there's a great deal of folklore, fiction, and pseudo-history that just abound within the realm of Ripperology. Mm -hmm. Um, He was never caught, and there are numerous suspects that have been discussed over the years, and they range from the potentially believable to the to the outrageous to the unbelievable even during the time um 
and uh, some of them, some of these suspects did have a surgical background because there was the whole apparent removal of organs in the murders. And so, you know, some thought, well, this this indicates that they had that the individual had some level of training or expertise or familiarity with human anatomy. Mm-hmm. Now, in Time After Time, uh, the Ripper is this character, Dr. John Leslie Stevenson, who is not an historical person, as far as I can tell, but... Weirdly enough, the 1990s Outer Limit episode Ripper, which stars David Warner and Carrie Elwes, was co-written by Leslie Stevens. So Mm. there you go. That's enough of a connection for Ripperology, I think. Wait, is Leslie Stevens a real person and it's just a coincidence or is this a pseudonym for saying it was like written by David Warner or something? <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's an IMDb writing credit that's okay. not David Warner. So I, I think it's either just somebody who happens to be Leslie Stevens or it is the actual Jack the Ripper having time traveled to the 90s to make a career for himself in, uh, in TV screenplay writing. OK, so the last week I have been wandering around my house non-stop singing that Cindy Lauper song. I can't get it out of my head. It is not mm-hmm. used in the film. In fact, the song was released after this film came out. Is there any connection between them? Uh, allegedly, Cindy Lauper was inspired to write the song because she liked the movie. And weirdly enough, there was a, a in the in recent history there has been a there was an attempt to bring the the novel time after time back as a TV series, and each episode of the TV series gets its title from the lyrics to Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. Nice, nice. Cindy Lauper doesn't get enough credit as a songwriter, you know. Uh yeah. have you ever have you ever actually listened to the uh like the lyrics of girls just want to have fun? That's actually like a a sort of profound and sad song. Yeah, yeah. I I I like some Cindy Lauper. I haven't really been playing her recently, but uh but yeah, she had a number of hits. I would I would generally take the Cindy Lauper songs of that era and put them above the Madonna uh, songs of that era. Ooh, I, I don't know if I would go that far, but definitely I'm a fan. And now I have to correct myself because I actually just looked it up to make sure and found out that Cindy Lauper did not write Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Her version was a cover version. Whoops. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, great song anyway, and her version is great. So we've already pretty much done our elevator pitch for time after time. Shall we go ahead and listen to just a little bit of the trailer audio? Not the full thing, but just a little bit of the trailer. Uh, maybe some. Oh man, I don't like this trailer. I feel like it really ta- it, it takes away from the movie. But okay, let's let's just get, at least get a snippet. The time is 1893, and novelist and inventor H.G. Wells makes a startling announcement. Gentlemen, I am talking about traveling through time. In a machine constructed for that very purpose. The first to use the machine, however, is Dr. John Leslie Stevenson. (laughs) Better known to history as Jack the Ripper. Time after time. Yeah, this is this is a bad trailer. I, I hate the comedic trailer narrator who's like, mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper is on a on a vacation. You know, I, it's <laughs> yeah. like always this kind of like Casey Kasem-esque voice that's like, uh-huh. you're going to have a good time at the theater. And yeah, no, yeah. give me the voice of God any day over this nonsense. 
The trailer is bad in numerous ways, and I do not recommend watching it. First of all, because of what you're saying, the tone and the narrator are irritating and I think do not accurately communicate the the, the spirit and feeling of the movie. And second, it the trailer reveals the entire plot, including the ending. It's one of those <laughs> awful things. So like if you've seen the trailer, the movie is kind of spoiled for you. Yeah, yeah. Not a good way to go in, into this film. Now, being a time travel movie, one of the things that I was thinking about for this episode is it it sort of made me want to create an in-house taxonomy of major types of time travel stories sorted by prevalent themes. Um, and of course, any given movie or, or story can partake of multiple different time travel themes, multiple of the themes that follow that we're about to talk about. And I'm also sure this list will not be exhaustive. People will probably write in and be like, hey, what about this type of movie? It'll mm -hmm. be something I didn't even think about. But I think here are some of the major categories of time travel stories. Uh, and, and we can talk about how time after time fits or does not fit into each of them. So the first one I wanted to mention is what I would call the debugging history story. Uh, and this is a type of time travel story that focuses primarily on isolating variables of cause and effect in the progression of history and human life. So it's largely concerned with uh, with the consequences of decisions and the long-term ripple effects of seemingly minor events and encounters. So this can be seen, for example, in Back to the Future, where Marty McFly learns that, uh, that you know, certain minor interventions with his parents as teenagers, like he gives his teenage dad a pep talk about standing up for himself and so forth. This radically changes the circumstances of his family 30 years later. Or it can be seen in movies that don't even really feature time travel, but just merely the alteration of past events. An example here might be uh, the final act of It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey learns that, you know, if, if Clarence the Angel tweaks history so that he was never born, everybody else in his life turns out miserable and impoverished, and he sees the impact that his life had. I would actually say that Time After Time does not partake heavily of the debugging history theme, though there are little nods here and there, especially at the ending. We can Maybe something we could talk about if you want or not, though it's a spoiler for the movie. Um, but uh, but th this is not the major type we're dealing with in Time After Time. Yeah, this, this film, ultimately, the character of Wells is more interested in protecting the future. That's what, that, what prompts him to travel through time in the film. Or at least not, not necessarily protecting the actual future, but protecting Wells' idea of the future. Uh, so in a sense, the existence of Jack the Ripper in, uh, even in the late 19th century is a threat to his worldview and vision for change. The idea of Jack the Ripper escaping into his envisioned utopia is a total threat to this idea. Now, while we're going through and talking about uh, time after time, I feel like we should also just run through this list, the example of Trancers 2, the other time travel <laughs> movie we've done. Yeah, uh, and I think the basic answer is always going to be yes, sort of, maybe, but who knows, because Trancers is all over the place yeah. with time travel and why they're doing it and who's doing it. Uh, but I would say, yes, Trancers definitely does this, but it's messy. Okay, that's a debugging history. The next major time travel theme, I would say, is Journey to Time Island. This is a time travel story. This is probably one of the least thematically interesting ways of using time travel in a story. And it's a story that uses some time in the future or the past primarily as a hostile setting for adventure. Mm -hmm. So in these stories, the past or the future can be thought of as largely equivalent to physical places like Skull Island or the Forbidden Planet. It's just a dangerous place 
for the characters to arrive and then face unfamiliar challenges. And I will say Time After Time does not largely fall into this category, but actually H.G. Wells' novel The Time Machine is more in this vein. Yeah, traveling into uh, a distant future, for example, that uh, that, that definitely is a commentary on the present or the the Victorian present uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that the author lived in, uh, but also it is just kind of this fantastic place in which to have an adventure. Right. I I think uh, The Time Machine also partakes uh, largely of another more interesting category we'll get to in a minute. Now, the the time travel, uh, the time island, rather, uh, this idea, I was I was thinking to myself, okay, well, what's something that, that falls in line with this? And my mind instantly goes to Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder, though that one is also a debugging history uh, tale to a, to a, a large extent. The yes. Sort of accidental debugging of history. Yeah. That th- this is bugging history, yeah. Inserting yeah. bugs in the lines of code of history, yeah. Yeah, the idea I can go back into dinosaur days and have a safe adventure hunting dinosaurs, but then you find out, no, you cannot. By doing so, you're totally bugging the future. That's a very good observation. Okay, third category. So we had debugging history, journey to time island. Third one I will say is what I would call fish out of time. Mm. This is a time-based equivalent of the standard fish out of water plot, uh, seen most often in comedies where most of the tension, usually comedic tension, is based on failures of the out-of-place protagonist to understand and adapt, understand and adapt to local conditions, expectations, you know, wandering around being confused by surroundings, accidentally violating taboos. So you can think of like Borat, but with time instead of place, or Demolition Man with the three seashells. Yeah, another example of this would be... Um a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Sure. You know, where there are a lot of comedic fodder is made on the fact that, oh, this person's out of time. They don't know what this means. And the people that he's around now, they don't know what this means. And hilarity ensues. And, you know, I will say usually fish out of time is not one of my favorite time travel themes, but time after time has a good amount of this. And I loved it in this movie. I would say it is, it works much better in time after time than it usually does in other stories of this sort. Yeah, it really excels at this, often with stuff that on paper just sounds awful. Like the yeah. idea, what if what if H.G. Uh, Wells traveled to the late 70s and went to a McDonald's? Uh-huh. Uh, it sounds awful, but I it's great. It. It's great. Yeah. My fav- That's one of my favorite scenes where he goes into the McDonald's and he's trying to make sense of everything. And then later, he's having a meal uh, with the romantic interest and and uh, she asks or how the food is. And he's like, oh, it's better than the, uh, the Scottish uh, restaurant uh, where I had breakfast. McDougal's, uh, yeah. Mc- <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. They, this this film excels at the fish out of time. Oh, and he gets really excited when he figures out what fries are. Oh yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, it's pom frites. It's pom frites. Now, as far as transfers goes, um, I think they did this. I'm yeah. pretty sure they did this. Yeah. Uh, there's a there was a fair amount of humor in transfers. So it's if if you have humor in your time travel uh, scenario, you're probably engaging in this trope. Okay, the next category is the one, I feel like I need a snappier name for this one, but it's basically what I would call the time travel arms race. And these are the ones that tend to be the most complicated in terms of plotting, and that's because they're the ones that take the premise the most seriously. Like, Mm -hmm. they're thinking really hard about what it would actually be like to have the power to travel back in time. 
and uh, and not just as a means to get the protagonist to an unfamiliar setting, but actually as an ongoing mechanism that can be used over and over, often ultimately as a weapon, something that grants godlike power. Because if you know what's going to happen in advance and you have the power to go back in time and, and approach any situation differently, you can make almost any situation turn out your way. And so this gives anybody who possesses the power of time travel the temptation to use it for selfish, deceitful, or evil purposes. And so I think these plots often contain both protagonists and antagonists who have the power to travel through time, uh, trying to sort of travel back further and further to gain advantage over one another. Uh, so the, the themes of this would usually include thoughts about weaponry, strategy, tricks, and the dangers of having too much power, especially too much technological power. Good examples of, th of this, I think, would include like the movie Primer. Um, the overarching premise of the Terminator films, though there's not a lot of this mechanic within the movies themselves, Terminator, the setup of each film usually involves some, th some form of the time travel arms race. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess in terms of more recent movies, you could think about Tenet as a version of this. All right. Yeah. Now, Trancers, I think, I think definitely Trancers got into this territory because there yeah. is the idea that, yeah, cult members have gone back in time and they have, they have Trancer armies. And so we need to send Trancer cops back in time to deal with them. So, yeah, Trancers being a high minded time travel movie definitely gets in on this action. <laughs> I, though I would say time after time has very little of this, and it would have made it an entirely different film in ways that we might mention later when we talk a little bit more about the plot. But uh, it, I don't really hold this against the movie because it just decided to go in a different direction with the way it structured its story. But tr uh, but time after time could have been a completely different film if it had just taken this premise seriously and, and H.G. Wells had said, OK, I can always just go back one more day in the past and do this instead. Right, right. Um, or I guess another thing that could have complicated matters is the idea of is the question of how many time machines are there? And is the time machine a singular entity or is time travel a technology that may be reproduced in this film in time after time? There is one time machine mm -hmm. um, and there are some interesting plot mechanics that, that keep it that way. And additionally, nobody has subsequently understood the time, how time travel works. The time machine winds up in a museum in San Francisco uh, uh -huh. and it's fully functional and nobody has really taken it apart to f figure out how it works. Yeah. Um, which uh, if, if you're going to be really pedantic about about it, yeah, it's it's that's kind of silly, but it, it works within the context of the film. Uh, yeah, agreed. Uh, so the next category I want to mention is kind of a subcategory because it's more of a category that would apply to usually how a like a twist at the end of an of a time travel story but this is what i would call the have you heard about the fates uh version i kind of don't want to list examples of this because by including them in this category i would usually be spoiling some kind of good twist in the movie uh but this is a variation that usually starts with something that looks more like debugging history or the time travel arms race only for the protagonist to discover too late that the fates cannot be outrun, and while they thought they were avoiding some bad outcome by going back and changing the past, they in fact were not avoiding it or were even causing it uh, or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, not so much in this picture. Trancers did not really get into this either. Um, but I, I, I will say that it does remind me, and this is not a spoiler, because, and I'll explain why, but the, the Stephen King time travel novel 112263, 
is is really good for starters. I highly recommend this book, uh, but it, uh, it definitely gets into this area early on because there's this idea that, yes, you can travel back into the past via this portal. But once you get there, changing history in any meaningful ways is, is incredibly difficult because there's a sense that it's like time is this, this surging river. And to try and divert the river's course, uh, there are forces like not, not you know, forces with, with names or faces so much, but like just reality itself will revolt against you. Like everything mm. will go wrong in your attempt to try and change the course of history. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I haven't read that one, but, but you've tempted me. Yeah, basically, say, uh, an, an individual becomes uh, convinced that going back and stopping the assassination of John F. Kennedy will make the world a substantially better place in the future. And mm-hmm. therefore, it's worth it. It's worth basically like a, a, a one-way trip to go and see this through. And uh, it, it's and he, King explores it for in, in a very long book. But in a, and, and also, it's a love story, mm-hmm. which, uh, which, of course, brings us back to, to this movie. It, I was wondering as I was watching it, how many subsequent time travel romances would just simply not exist if not for time after time? I'm thinking about everything from Outlander to Highlander, which even though Highlander <laughs> uh-huh. is not about traveling through time via mechanics, it is about immortal characters living outside of their original time uh-huh. and then falling in love. Uh, so I feel like this film was, was probably very influential on this sort of subgenre of time travel fiction. Oh, well, I think this is another great category we should mention, which is the the love across time uh, mm. story, which is time after time, I think you could definitely say is an example of it's a type of love story. You know, it's common in a love story to have people who who clearly want to be together, but there's some kind of tension that keeps them apart. And that could be, you know, social expectations. It could be, you know, in romantic comedies is often a, a series of farcical misunderstandings that leads them mm-hmm. to fighting each other. Uh, in, uh, but in, in a lot of more sort of serious and tragic love stories across history, it's often been like separation of time of space. So, you know, like, yeah. we, uh, like we're from different kingdoms or something and we can't be together for that reason. But there are movies that do this with time travel as well. It's like, well, no, I've got to go back to my time and you don't want to leave your time and so forth. Yeah. Other times it's the Lady Hawk scenario. It's like you're a you're a hawk during the day. I'm a, a wolf at night, and we're just not lying. We can't align. <laughs> That's except during a yeah. total eclipse, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, and then one last category I want to mention, but because I think this is the one that applies the most to time after time. This is the category I would call fresh eyes for bad eras, mm. and this is the type of time travel story that is primarily about commenting on the particular features of an age, of the time in which they are set. Usually the present, uh, but often uh, also the future as influenced by the present. And so I think these tend to contain the most social commentary of any of the the time travel subgenres. So the time traveler is able to look upon an age such as the present and see it with fresh eyes, noticing things, usually bad things, that the chrono locals have learned to ignore just because they're inured to them. And so uh, time after time, actually much like H.G. Wells' actual novel, The Time Machine, partakes heavily of this theme – uh, tying it back into the novel, The Time Machine itself, apart from it just being a sort of journey to Time Island, it's also very much this one because he was using a, a dystopian vision of the future to suggest that such a future would follow from negative trends that existed in his present. So he's mm-hmm. commenting on the present by suggesting a horrible future. 
Uh, but in in time after time, it's just looking directly at the present. And I think this is one of the the most interesting ideas in the movie. So it takes these two time travelers from 1890s London. So H.G. Wells, who the character in the film is a progressive utopian socialist in 1890s London. He believes that humanity will pretty soon advance to a golden age of peace and prosperity and egalitarianism, where there will be no war, no violence, no inequality, no oppression, and so forth. And then the other is Jack the Ripper, who is sort of the embodiment of violent, sadistic, misogynist id. And what if these two figures suddenly got a look at the world in 1979 with without having a chance to get used to it as time progresses slowly in the normal sense? What would they think? So, of course, there's a scene in the present where Jack the Ripper turns on a TV and he just starts flipping channels for Wells to see what's on. And it's just scene after scene, both real and fictional, of hatred, violence, murder, war, terrorism, nuclear escalation, full contact football. <laughs> and uh, Wells is horrified to see that his utopian dreams were hopelessly naive. And the Ripper is just like, yes, good war football i am home this is a, a lovely scene yeah taking place in jack the ripper's hotel room um that's a you know a little uh, a little messy because he's been staying there he hasn't been ripping there but he's been staying there uh he has this line uh he has several lines that really drive this home but one of them is 90 years ago i was a freak today i'm an amateur <laughs> that's right um, and, and there's, yeah, there's so much to love in this. Some of the little things, like when he turns on the TV, he's like, he's clearly at ease in this world. He's wearing the, the suit of the day, you know, of, of the, the time period. He's, he's largely acclimatized to the late 1970s at this point. But then he holds the remote control in a really weird fashion to turn on the TV, uh -huh. which is a great touch. You know, it's like he, because this character, yeah, he's like, I feel the spirit of this age, but I'm not altogether on the technology just yet. Yeah, it's great. And there are all these little things in the movie that signal this as it goes on that um, there's an irony where H.G. Wells is the progressive futurist. And the, the age that he travels to does include a lot of the, the ideals he believed in. Like he is pleased to discover that, that women have more rights now than they did in his time and so forth. But there's this irony because he, for some reason, doesn't feel comfortable and easy to adapt to the culture of the future in the way that Jack the Ripper does. Yeah. Uh, the treatment of the Ripper in this, it reminds me a lot of the ideas that Alan Moore would uh, would later uh, explore in his uh, his now classic graphic novel From Hell about Jack the Ripper, in which the Ripper is presented as the dark um, uh, embodiment of the Victorian age and ultimately the, the, the beginning of the 20th century, a kind of prophet of the modern age to follow. Now, needless to say, that's a much darker treatment, and our Ripper in this film does not see himself as such a grandiose figure. He's, he simply shan't stop ripping, and this is an even better age in which to do it, but he, like, like, like that line above uh, that, that we mentioned uh, implies, he feels like the world has ultimately passed, passed him by. It's, even, it's, even, uh, it's, it's not only met his, his, uh, his spirit, but it has surpassed his spirit, but he's happy to live in this age. Right. And so one could take this in a, in a kind of um, simplistic way and say that, well, maybe the movie is just engaging in the sort of naive pessimism 
the pessimistic bias that makes people always think that ah, times are just the worst they've ever been. Things are always getting worse. The hell in a handbasket thinking. Mm-hmm. And I would say the movie actually doesn't quite do that. It, it pretty frequently acknowledges things that in Wells' view are better about the present than they were in Wells' time. But there's also something off about the modern age, especially something about this sort of uh, about the sort of indifference to violence and the sort of callousness of the modern world the, that the Ripper finds very welcoming. What is the the headline in the newspaper that he picks up uh, about? It's a sports headline. It's like Rams Massacre Colts or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was Rams Mall Colts or something. Yeah, yeah. which I, I love that. Mo- that's a great one of many great moments in the, the film where it's like, yeah, that headline is just insane. It implies outside of the, the you know, the modern sports understanding of it that uh, that like uh, herbivores are, are tearing each other apart in the streets. You know, mm. like we're living in like a biblically misaligned age. Yeah, and so I, I don't know. I, I appreciate the the interesting complexity of the feeling that it has about the present. That like some things have definitely progressed and gotten better since the time that Wells is used to, but there are other things that are just sort of like always new sicknesses that continually emerge throughout history. And there's something going on with a kind of uh, with a kind of inurement to violence and hatred that just is pervasive in the modern world. And I, I think I think a lot of this is exemplified by the setting, uh, because you know I, I like the idea of setting it in New, in um, in the United States, even though it you know it begins in what is supposed to be London. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could have easily you could imagine someone arguing, well, let's set this in seventies New York, you know, just straight to Hell City. But mm-hmm. no, you go to San Francisco, and their treatment of San Francisco is is this kind of almost fifty fifty split of seedier elements and seedier parts of town, but also you have so many. Uh, you have a lot of time in the film to admire sort of modern late 70s architecture in San Francisco, to, mm-hmm. to walk through the parks and in public spaces. So uh, I, I think it's a nice balance that's achieved through the, the setting. And ultimately, the film is like a – in a way, it's like a – it makes you want to visit uh, San Francisco. It's like a, yeah. like a tourism uh, brochure for the city. They spend a lot of time wandering around the uh, the Pan American Exposition buildings, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because he's you know Wells is admiring them, and Mary Steenburgen's character, uh, I think she has to break his heart and inform him that they're made of plaster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He asks if they're made of marble, and and she says, says no plaster. But is yeah. that actually worse? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. They are beautiful to look at. Since I guess it's time to jump into the connections anyway, I just wanted to flag a strange fact, which is that, okay, so this movie was uh, directed and at least in part written by Nicholas Meyer. I know there were, it was based on a novel, and I think there are multiple story credits for the movie. But Nicholas Meyer, the director, and, and uh, he, I think, wrote the screenplay at least, or was one of the writers, uh, he made this movie, which is about H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper traveling through time to 1979 San Francisco, and... Nicholas Meyer also was one of the writers of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, which involves time traveling to present-day San Francisco, but from the future (laughs) instead of the past. Interesting. He knows what he likes. Yeah. So Nicholas Meyer was born in 1945, an American writer and director who first made a splash with the 1974 Sherlock Holmes novel The 7% Solution, in which Sigmund Freud helps Sherlock Holmes battle his drug addiction. Interesting. 
Meyer wrote the screenplay for the, the 1976 film adaptation that starred uh, Nicole Williamson, Robert Duvall, Alan Arkin, and Laurence Olivier, as well as Charles Gray and Samantha Egger. It was a big hit. Uh, Meyer wrote more Holmes novels and then went on to direct this film in 1979, followed by Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982 and Star Trek The Undiscovered Country in 1991, among other films. But those, those were the big ones. One interesting thing about Nicholas Meyer as a filmmaker was that he was also behind the 1983 TV special or, or TV movie The Day After, which was uh, a supposedly uh, a factual look at the possibilities of nuclear war, like what mm. if the Cold War went hot? And uh, and this, I, it's hard to tell exactly how influential it was, but it has been alleged that this TV movie was pretty influential, even at like high levels of government, and and changed the thinking of some uh, uh, military and political officials about antagonism in in the Cold War. Oh wow. Now, he also wrote a number of screenplays, including, but not limited to, uh, Star Trek The Voyage Home, um, The Human Stain, and the pilot episode for the 2017 TV series Time After Time, which we alluded to earlier, which um, I have not seen it. It may be great, but just looking at stills, it looks like it asks the question, what if Time After Time but hunkier? Yeah, it's got some very square jaw lines. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, uh, Nicholas Meyer, Saturn Award winner, uh, and he's been nominated for both an Academy Award and three Emmys. But uh, if I understand correctly, this movie, much like 2001 A Space Odyssey, was one of the rare cases where a movie based on a book is being completed simultaneously to the completion of the book. That's right. And this leads us to the, um, the, the writer Carl Alexander. Uh, this is the son of William Tunberg, who wrote the screenplay for Old Yeller, and the nephew of Carl Tunberg, who wrote the screenplay for Ben-Hur. This was, his, uh, this was his first novel, Time After Time, though the book was actually optioned before it was completed uh, by Nicholas Meyer, who happened to be a friend of Alexander's, who you know had, had heard him talking about it and had, I think, looked at, at part of the the, uh, the, the, uh, the 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 novel before it was completed, mm-hmm. uh, and so he was like, "This is it. I want this to be my next film." So the film is finished um, uh, alongside the book. The book and the film are being completed at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, he he went on to follow this up with a a, a sequel novel in 2019 or at least it published in 2019. I'm not sure if someone else had to finish it for him or how it worked out with the manuscript because he lived 1938 through 2015, so he would not have lived to see uh, Jacqueline the Ripper published in 2019. <laughs> now, the writer Steve Hayes also has a story credit on in this, born 1931. Uh, again, I think this comes back to the fact that the screenplay and the novel were essentially being completed at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hayes did a lot of TV writing, including for at least two series, that I wasn't familiar with based on popular 80s action films, Conan, which ran uh, 97 through 98, and Rambo from 1986, which I got excited about and then realized that it was a cartoon. But then also, (laughs) I find that weird that we decided Rambo needed to be a cartoon. Yeah, I didn't know there was a Conan or a Rambo TV series. All right, well, let's come back to Malcolm McDowell, who plays H.G. Wells in this, uh, born in 1943. And this is is a guy where it's, it's 
it's hard to even figure out where to begin. Legendary British actor who played Alex and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange in 1971. Uh, again, he was in the notorious 1979 film Caligula, uh, which uh, came right before this one. He was in 82's Cat People. I fondly remember him from a child watching uh, 1983's Blue Thunder. He plays the villain in that who flies this little helicopter that battles our big uh, combat police helicopter that is Blue Thunder. <laughs> Oh boy! I do not Gotta know. Gotta love I was... a helicopter a battle movie. <laughs> How many are there? And I remember um, there's one called I think Firebirds that has mm, yeah. maybe maybe Charlie Sheen or somebody in it. I think so. Yeah, this one I have no idea how big of a splash Blue Thunder was uh, at all, but it was big for me as a kid because my aunt had taped some films off of HBO. This was one of them. And uh, it was probably inappropriate for me to be watching it, but I, I, I mainly watched it for the, the helicopter combat scenarios. And then I would build the helicopters out of Legos and have them crash into each other. That's great. I, I was wrong, actually. It wasn't Charlie Sheen. It was Nicolas Cage who was in Firebirds. Oh, okay. Firebirds was a one of those bad action movies that I taped off TV when I was a kid because I was like, looks like this will be a military action movie. I'm... I, you know, I'm a boy in East Tennessee. This is the kind of movie I'm supposed to be watching. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. uh, not great. So uh, Malcolm McDowell, like we said, he continues to work a lot in films and TV. Uh, we can't we, we can't mention everything he's been in before. I believe he's come up on the show before. Not not maybe in a film that we've watched, but in you know the various connections. But he played uh, Doctor Loomis in both of Rob Zombie's Halloween films, mm-hmm. um, which I have not seen. But I, I'm assume he's villainous in those. Uh, Oh, no. he. I mean, he looks villainous because Malcolm McDowell usually does, though he doesn't in time after time. I, I don't know how exactly they accomplish that. Uh, maybe with the, <laughs> the, the careful use of hairstyling and facial hair. Um, but uh, no, he's not villainous in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. He's just not super helpful. Ah. Now, one of the interesting things about, uh, about Malcolm McDowell in this film is that this is where he met his second wife, uh, Mary Steenburgen. Um, who plays the character Amy Robbins, uh, born 1953. Uh, but yeah, they apparently met on this film, uh, fell in love on this film, were subsequently married. And their son is Charlie McDowell, or one of their, their children anyway, is Charlie McDowell, who is a director who directed the excellent 2014 film, The One I Love. Mary Steenburgen is also great in this. She has a she has a, a, a kind of funny, nervous energy in the movie, and, uh, and she's, of course, great as, as a comic actress. Um, she essentially... Would you say that you think she was sort of playing a similar character in this to the character she plays in Back to the Future 3? I guess so. Back to the Future 3 is one of those films that I think most people only see once. So I I don't really remember her all that. I remember the basics of the character, but I don't know how closely they align with this. Right. Well, uh, I I was just thinking Back to the Future 3 had to in part be based on or partially derived from her role in Time After Time. Yeah. Yeah, I I would think so. I mean, because ultimately I think most time travel romance uh, novels or films or TV shows have it have to at least in some way uh, look back to time after time. It feels very influential. Uh, but yeah, she. Uh, I think it took me a while to figure out that she is uh, so good as a comic actress because I think I recall the first the first role in which I really became familiar with her was as like a nefarious uh, lawyer defending the bad company in Philadelphia. Oh, Uh, okay. You remember that? Uh, I, I, I 
It's been a long time. I think I saw that many years ago. Well, yeah, I think she plays a ruthless lawyer who's who's defending the company that's being sued, and and she has like cruel scenes where she grills Tom Hanks on the stand. Uh, but that was before I'd seen her really in any comedy stuff, and and she's great in comedies. She's uh she she's great in Step Brothers, uh, where where mm-hmm. Will Ferrell is her son, I think, and. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, it it makes me wonder, is Will Ferrell her son with H.G. Wells from this movie? <laughs> I, I always enjoy her when she, she she often pops up in various comedy things that her husband, uh, Ted Danson, is in. Uh, and so she's been very funny in some of those films. I remember she was an elf and had a, a pretty, uh, pretty fun role in that. But ultimately, uh, Academy Award winning actor here with uh, with Mary uh, Steenburgen here. Um uh, and she's pretty good in this. Yeah, she's it's a it's it's an interesting role because she's called upon in I think her only second screen presence to play the modern woman to like to represent not only the modern woman from the the the, the film's perspective but the future woman the woman of the future from H. G. Wells's perspective. Uh, so it's it's kind of a uh it, it it mostly holds up today uh there there are certainly some some choices here and there where you're like well i think they would they would inevitably do that differently if you were to to create this uh again in like 2020 or 2021 but well um, i would say those are not choices on mary steenberg no no not part. at all they're, that's they're the things writing. in the script yeah there yeah. there are some like it is ironic that some of the parts of this movie that the movie clearly regards as the most illustrative of the culture of the modern world are exactly the ones that have aged the most poorly. Like they're they're uh, mm-hmm. like there's a scene where Mary Steen Mergen's character uses is casually using uh, offensive language to refer to lesbians. Like she says the D word. I assumed that that word was considered derogatory at the time. I think it was. And she talks about how she does want to pursue her own career ambitions, but she offers the disclaimer that I'm not women's lib. <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah. Or she also uh, echoes this this idea that one's work should be your life and that that's not like a healthy choice for the modern professional. Yeah. Um, as if, well, like, ultimately, Jack the Ripper's main flaw is that he's making too much time for his hobbies. Right, yeah. I do think it's interesting, though, in this film that's like comparing these, you know, different expectations for how the future will turn out, especially with regards to things like moral values and all that, that like some of the things that are that are considered the most like sort of textural illustrations of how people think in the modern world are some of the things that have aged the worst. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, But but again, ultimately, this is the writing. Nothing on Mary. Mary's great in this. True. All right. Let's let's get to our ripper. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the actor who plays Dr. John Leslie Stevenson, a.k.a. Ooh. Jack the Ripper. This is the legendary David Warner. David Warner is fantastic in this. Yes. Yeah, he's he is great. Uh, Warner, uh, born 1941, uh, as of this recording, still 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 around and either still active or was still active uh, in a limited uh, uh, to a limited uh, degree as of like 2020. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, especially when you're doing with older individuals like this. I don't know if he has effectively retired at this point or he's you know going to come back and do some more voice acting. Uh, but he like McDowell, has been in just everything twice. Uh, He has 225 acting credits on IMDb. He has done theater. He has done audio dramas. Uh, He seems like a a guy who has just constantly been working through, you know, just just nonstop throughout his whole career. Yeah. And like McDowell, he also has a real knack for playing villains Mm -hmm. and has played some really notable ones. Uh, He was in Titanic. He was in Tron, Time Bandits. Oh, Uh, 
Yeah, he was in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, also popped up on some key episodes of, of Trek television series, including the one where the Romulan tortures Picard. I'm sorry, not a Romulan. It's a Cardassian. Good. <laughs> what are they? Um, I, I don't know. Carda- not a Cardassian. Cardassians. Cardassian, yes, the okay. Cardassians. He plays a Cardassian in that, uh, uh-huh. and a Car- Cardassian interrogator, and he is um, he is torturing Picard and trying him to uh, to like break him. Uh, very memorable ep- uh, episode. Uh, speaking of being in time travel movies, oh, I love him in Time Bandits. He plays the villain in Time Bandits. He's he's uh, the embodiment of evil. He's sort of the devil, mm-hmm. uh, but he is obsessed with technology. In Time Bandits, which I think has some sort of satirical content, but like a lot of things in Time Bandits and, and Terry Gilliam movies more generally, I and it's a thing that I like. A lot of times the satire is not super clear. It's, it's satirical in a kind of vague way. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I love that the devil, like he's he seems to not really understand what subscriber try dialing is, but he really wants to know about it. And <laughs> he really wants to know about, uh, you know, about computers and things. Oh, I need to watch that one again. Yeah. So David Warner is an actor who's been in in way too many things to list here, uh, but I, I I thought I might mention some of some of my additional favorite roles that, that he's had, and I think all of these are roles where he doesn't necessarily play a villain. Uh, he has a role in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Hmm. Uh, he plays the the head of the Assassins Guild and the Hogfather, and oh, most memorably, he plays both uh, a good guy and a bad guy in The Quest of the Delta Knights. I don't know that movie. Oh, oh my goodness. So the Quest of the Delta Knights is this low-budget, Renfesty fantasy yarn. Um, and uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was used on Mystery Science Theater 3000, so it was riffed on, on that Ooh. show. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, as I recall. Uh, but I, it's, it's, it's what the thing I love about it is that it's not something that comes to mind as a good David Warner film. But there was a fabulous interview with David Warner on the AV Club by Will Harris with David Warner. This was in 2017, uh, where they basically just run through and ask him about various films that he was in. And, you know, just, you know, what kind of stories do you have from this picture? What kind of stories do you have from this picture? And they, they asked him about the Quest of the Delta Knights, and he responded with this. Wow. Well, that was, of course, a low-budget film, which, uh, what's, what's that called? Mystery Science Theater? It ended up there laughs. But I had great fun doing it, playing two parts. Originally, I was just asked to play the one part. And I said, would it save you money if I played two parts for the same money? And they said, yes. (laughs) So I had great fun changing from a black wig into a gray wig and putting brown contact lenses into my normal blue eyes. It was great fun logistically. So I have great affection for that little low budget film. I've always loved that, this idea that this, this film that we think of as being bad and you know and forgettable for a, an actor of David Warner's uh, pedigree, he's like, no, that was that was tremendous fun. I'm so glad I did that picture. Wonderful. In that same interview, uh, he also mentions that when it comes to time after time, the studio wanted Mick Jagger for this role, <gasps> but oh. um, yeah, but the, but the filmmakers were like, no, we don't want Mick Jagger. We really want David Warner, and they fought for David Warner, and thank God they got him. Yeah. Because you had to save Mick Jagger for Free Jack. <laughs> I think Free Jack shows us everything we need to know. That uh, it would have. Yeah. I'm not saying Mick Jagger would have made a bad Jack the Ripper, I, but I don't think he would have been. A, well, he would not have been a very good Jack the Ripper. Let's just leave it there. I like David Warner. Yes, I'm glad yeah. we got David Warner. 
Uh, yeah, he's great in this. Get the mate. That's your Mick Jagger, though. That's not your David Warner. Right, no. our, our ripper in this film, uh, mm, Dr. Stevenson. Get meat, yeah. <laughs> he's very, very stern. Um, but at times, he has a, a sardonic wit uh, to him. He's it's just it's a great role, and he has a lot of great lines in it. Um, it's it's a very interesting villain, and ultimately, I think this may be my my favorite take on Jack the Ripper. I mean, Jack the Ripper is a character that doesn't automatically mean great film presence, right. uh, but he's I, I think Warner's terrific in this film. You know what I also love Warner in is uh, is Tron, where there's a thing in Tron where. The same actor will usually play a character in the real world in in meat space, but then also play <laughs> a character within the digital world. And uh-huh. so David Warner does. He's like a sort of uh, a corrupt uh, software business leader guy. I think he steals somebody's ideas for some video games or something in the real world. But then within the uh, computer world, he plays the villain Sark, who is this evil, like, you know, Frisbee player who works for the master control program. <laughs> if you haven't seen the old Tron, it's it's worth seeing for a number of reasons. But David Warner is a great villain in it. Oh, yes, he's great. Uh, oh, I should also, I mentioned that 90s Outer Limits episode that has Jack, about Jack the Ripper. I watched it last night, uh, so I just have to share real oh. quick. It's titled Ripper, mm-hmm. and it's pretty fun. It may be a little long, like the, the episode is longer than the premise demands, uh, but it's it's pretty great. Uh, Carrie Elwes is in it, but also Francis Fisher and uh, France Nguyen of uh, Death Moon fame, or oh, at least okay. for us of Death Moon fame. I don't think anybody is actually of Death Moon fame. But, um, but it's got a fun cast, and it, the premise is essentially this. What if the Jack the Ripper murders were not due to a human killer, but were due to some sort of, a, of an alien space snake that, goes, uh, that, it, that travels into people's mouths and then emerges from their bellies? thus creating the abdominal wounds associated with the Jack the Ripper killings. Wow. Yeah. So it, it, Okay. It's Does David more, Warner play the snake? No. David Warner plays um, a Scotland Yard investigator, mm-hmm. and uh, Carrie Elwes plays a former doctor turned opium and um, – uh, what is he? He's an, he's an opium addict, but also uh, he's drinking too much, too much absinthe. And oh. uh, is just generally depressed and sweaty all the time, <laughs> and oh, so no. so he there's a lot of great overacting from him, uh, like just the right level of overacting, the type of overacting you you want from Carrie Elwes. Okay, well I guess I got to see that one. Maybe it'll come up in a in a future uh, anthology episode. All right. Um, as far as other people in the film, like these are really the three main characters. I'm not sure how many of these other individuals we need to go into. Some of them are only in it briefly. Uh-huh. Um, there are but, some cameos that, mm-hmm. that pop out. Uh, Corey Feldman shows up as a child. Yep. I don't think he has any lines, but I just saw him and I was like, wait, that's Corey Feldman. And then he just yeah. walks off screen. He may say something like, look, mom, a time machine or something like that man's in. Uh-huh. I don't know. He, he maybe says something. But yeah, this was his film debut. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, another film debut, uh, I, I believe this was at least his first credit, film screen credit, is uh, M.C. Ganey, who just plays uh, one of the London Bobbies. Uh, but this is an actor born 1948. You've, you may not envision him in your mind when I say his name, but if you look him up, you'll be like, oh, that guy. Because he's a character actor frequently cast as rotund creepers, bikers, and bad cops. 
Uh, yeah, think about the the pilot of the plane in Con Air. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. That was him. Now, I usually pinpoint the music, and I should pinpoint the music in this one as well. It is a, a score by Miklos Rosa, who lived 1907 through 1995. So if you're watching this and the, the score to this film feels very traditional, well, that's because uh, Rosa cut his teeth on film scores in the 30s and 40s. He was a Hungarian-American child um, prodigy. Uh, His earliest successes included The Four Feathers in 1939 and The Thief of Baghdad in 1940. He earned 17 Academy Award nominations, including three Oscars for Spellbound in 45, A Double Life in 47, and Ben-Hur in 59. So, huge name in the score business in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, He composed a good 100 scores and also maintained a career as a concert composer. So, even though it's not the sort of film score that I would I would I would personally want to listen to outside of the viewing experience, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a fine score by a legendary composer. It is a non synth score that you will allow. Yes, yeah, I, I will allow it. So I guess we're getting kind of close to the end here. I, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, for this one to talk in much detail about about the plot or, or scene by scene. But I mean, broadly. The main thing is you have this setup where you establish the characters in the 1890s, and then uh, there and then there is uh, invocation of the time travel mechanism. So Jack mm-hmm. the Ripper escapes to the future, and uh, and H.G. Wells realizes what has happened, realizes that his friend is in fact Jack the Ripper, has escaped to the future using his time machine that he invented, and now it's his responsibility to track him down and bring him to justice. So that's one half of the plot is this sort of chase through time, and then the other half is broadly the love story when. H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells arrives in the future. He and Mary Steenburgen, they meet each other at a bank because he is trying to exchange 100-year-old uh, uh, <laughs> British pounds for money that he can use to buy palm frits at McDougal's. And um, and she is working there at the currency exchange. They meet and they fall in love. And, and there's a very sweet love story that develops between them as, as, the, uh, as the plot goes on. And the, the threat of Jack the Ripper is sort of looming in the background. But apart from that, I mean, I guess uh, drawing on the themes, I, I think one thing that's interesting in this movie is uh, it's very pointed about H.G. Wells' reaction, his uh, extreme resistance to arming himself with weapons in his mm-hmm. struggle against Jack the Ripper. Like he, when he goes to try to apprehend him at first, he doesn't arm himself or try to use force in any way. He just goes and tries to talk him into coming back with him. Mm-hmm. And even later on, as the threat becomes more and more dire, it's only at a point of sort of like breakdown and extremity that he finally gets a gun. Uh, it's something that he's been urged to do, I think by Mary Steenburgen and maybe other characters uh, uh, before that time. And I, I wondered what you thought about that. It was an interesting decision to make this character who's so almost irrationally resistant to, to using weapons or arming himself. Yeah. That, I, I did wonder at that point in the film, like what it was ultimately supposed to mean. Like maybe, I guess it was probably more about the character and the necessity of the plot. Like it, it may be one of those situations where you, you, you're like, okay, he's in a life and death struggle surely he would break and get some sort of a weapon at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it also helps with the whole situation where the police have apprehended him and they find him not only uh, behaving suspiciously, but also armed. So I, I guess it has its role in the plot. I, I don't, I, I, I was, I struggled to get anything more significant out of it personally. Well, well, I mean, I, I mean, I think it probably has something to do with like his utopian ideal because uh, Wells is imagining, you know, he's, 
his character and the actual H.G. Wells in in the late 19th century like was a member of the Fabian Society and mm-hmm. did think that, you know, uh, that incrementalist change in a progressive direction would eventually eliminate war and poverty and all that kind of stuff. And so if he's thinking of the utopian ideal, I mean, it seems that he is committed to the utopian ideal of nonviolence in a way that even – uh, could be very self-destructive and could be seen as irrational in this cases where like clearly he's dealing with like a dangerous killer one-on-one. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that the time when he breaks this is in a moment of weakness. It's when he's sort of like lost it. True. True. Yeah. But I thought that also had interesting implications and I don't want to spoil anything, but for how, how the conflict is finally resolved in the end. Uh, another point i would i would make uh, about the time machine because I, I you know i, I want to step into a movie like this and i expect to sort of geek out about the particulars of time travel a bit and mm-hmm. it's interesting because if you ask me to explain exactly how the time machine works and i'm not talking about like the you know the, the power system and all it's supposed to be like solar powered or something but there's solar this, powered even though it's in his basement yeah right <laughs> uh but there's this whole bit about uh, the different keys that make it do different things. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot tell you what, what this, how these exactly worked. Uh, but the film, the, the, the film screenplay and presentation is so effective that you, you don't really have to think too much about it. Right. Uh, it but it's almost like uh, the whole situation where it's like you, you have to try and draw a bicycle. You have this vision of the bicycle in your head and you think you understand it, but then you really don't, not enough to draw it. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like that's how the time machine functions in this this plot. Like they, it, it works. It, I understand how it functions in the plot and ultimately in the, uh, the climax of the picture. But I also would struggle to explain how these keys work and which one does what. That's one type of writing skill. I mean, one good quality of writing is writing that gives you the illusion of explanatory depth. I mean, most yeah. stories that you enjoy, you probably couldn't go through and explain in the same level of detail as the author, why exactly everything happens and stuff. But there, there's a sort of uh, ease you settle into with certain types of storytelling with good writing and all that, where, where you just kind of like, forget about it. You don't worry about it. And you, you, you accept that everything makes sense even when it often doesn't. And I mean, and, and one way in which it doesn't that I, wanted to bring up is how this movie does not get into the, the archetype of the time travel story, the, the arms race that I was talking about earlier. And I was thinking about how different the movie could have been if it had embraced that ethic. So when Jack the Ripper flees to the future, the way HG Wells decides to deal with it is he's going to go to the same time in the future and bring him back instead of going one day in the past and preventing (laughs) Jack the Ripper from stealing his time machine in the first place. Yeah. Like that, that might've been a wiser choice, but it wouldn't have made for as fun of motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. Just different storytelling sensibilities. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I, I think it comes down to what is it that the the storyteller really wants us to think about. In this case, I think they want us to think about uh, the qualities of the present age in which the movie was made, sort of the the arc of history and how that would be sort of metabolized by somebody from the past with utopian ideals and, and things like that. Uh, and it wants to tell that kind of story more than it wants to tell the kind of story about the the power that would be granted by a time machine and and how people would use that power. Yeah, yeah. My final note on this film is that there's a scene later on where H.G. Wells is using a phone booth. Oh, my, wait, let me back up. Uh, another great point in this film where I was laughing out loud 
uh, and disturbing my wife while she was trying to work uh, in the next room. It was the whole scene with the garbage disposal. Like there's yes. a scene where somebody goes uh-huh. to use a garbage disposal and you just see the hand. It turns out it's not H.G. Wells. Um, but you're like, oh, no, don't let H.G. Wells use the garbage disposal. Mm-hmm. He is not ready for this technology. Very good point. Yeah. And he's repeatedly confused by phones, though he eventually gets the hang of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's a great part where he goes to a telephone booth and, and there's some like graffiti that I think yes. is supposed to, to display the sort of like violence and callousness of the age. Yes. It says eat razor blades, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is great because it's one of the, I love it when movie graffiti is like clearly orchestrated. It doesn't feel like an organic, uh, bit, bit of, uh, of legit, graffiti art from the age like this is the prop department but it feels perfect for this film like it it feels in line with the sort of uh, worries about the future and the present that are inherent in this tale of jack the ripper traveling through time Mm -hmm. all right well uh we're going to probably go and close it out here Uh, obviously we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have not seen time after time well lucky you it's widely available on disc and as a digital purchase or rental or a physical rental if you have a a video store like say videodrome in your area as of this recording it's currently streaming on hbo max in the u.s so if you sign into the app, if you if, into that app, if you use that service, you can skip all the Mortal Kombat and Suicide Squad stuff. Go right to the classics. They have a they have really have a great selection of older films on there. Oh yeah, I've lately been impressed by by the selection of older movies on HBO Max. Thumbs up on that. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you'll find it on Fridays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast. Uh, but on Fridays, we put aside most of the the, the, the science uh, discussion. I guess there's been more of it in here since we're talking about time travel. Uh, but generally, Fridays, that those are, those are our days to just talk about weird films. And thus, here we are. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 